0: look ahead, imagine more, gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at ConeResnick.com slash breakthrough.
1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: This week on the podcast, I had an absolutely fascinating and fantastic conversation with uh, a rock star professor of neurolinguistics and cognitive psychology, and all sorts of other interesting uh, fields of study within the world of cognition and, and psychology. Uh, professor Steven Pinker at Harvard University. This guy is a rock star. This was really one of those conversations that was just so fascinating and went in so many different directions. Uh, He's a psychologist, but he also has a really fascinating uh, quantitative background, and so he's a guy that's actually especially driven by data. Uh, When you think of things like neurolinguistics or or visual cognition, you don't think in terms of of how's the math behind this. But he has a, a mind that looks at the world very much through a quantitative filter uh he he wrote a number of by the way uh, won a ton of awards uh, at at harvard and throughout the sciences highly highly regarded his books have uh, are also really really well reviewed very notable uh the book better better nature of our angels why violence has decreased around the world and indeed when you look at it quantitatively, violence and war and crime are at record low levels. I know it doesn't look that way when you when you see the news, but uh, that's a fascinating conversation. It's I, I love that sort of counterintuitive. Here's what everybody believes. It's all wrong. Here's the data and proving it. Uh, and and he brings that approach to everything. He he touches his his work on how the the mind works is is really fascinating how children acquire language skills and why that is a significant evolutionary development amongst humans is really you know groundbreaking fascinating stuff um you may not think that there's an immediate application to the world of investing but he's just one of these people who are so interesting and so knowledgeable and has such an interesting model in his mind for how to approach thinking about the world that I can't help but think that there are lessons for investors in this. So a little off uh, the beaten path, but absolutely fascinating. Here is my conversation with Professor Steven Pinker.
1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ridholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: My special guest today is Professor Steven Pinker he is a rock star professor of cognitive science and psychology at Harvard, where he holds the title of Johnstone Family Professor in the psych department. He is a psychologist, linguist, and popular science author specializing in visual cognition and psycholinguistics. I think you're going to find a lot of what we talk about today today. Absolutely fascinating. He's won numerous awards from the National Academy of Sciences, the Royal Institute, the Cognitive Neuroscience Society. He is the author of The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, The Better Angels of Our Nature, The Stuff of Thought, and most recently, The Sense of Style. He is also on the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary. Professor Pinker, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. First question I have to ask you, what is visual cognition and psycholinguistics? Those are two
1: subtopics in the field of cognitive science, which is how do we think, What what is the nature of intelligence? Visual cognition is how we um, interpret what we see, or how we think about what we see. How do you recognize the face of a friend? How do you find an object when you're rummaging through a drawer? How do you imagine things that uh, that are hypothetical? Like, what would my living room look like if the couch was on the other side? Or what would this molecule look like if I rotated it in three dimensions? Uh, how do we uh, allocate attention across the visual field? Um, how, uh, how does your airport screener look for the hidden weapon in those f- uh, false colored x ray images and so on?
2: Or, or, or not find them in 95% uh, of the uh, cases. So, so we seems. have learned, yes. In,
1: indeed. So that is a problem in visual cognition. It's not vision in the sense of seeing color and motion and, uh, and sharp detail, but it's the next step up in the brain namely, how do you, how does the uh, the visual world um, interact with what you know, what you see, what you think about.
2: So that raises an interesting question. How much of what the average person perceives as a 360 degree construct of the universe around them, how much of that is accurate and how much of that is the brain filling in, projecting, I don't want to say fabricating, but filling in the, the blind spots and blank spaces is what we see Actually, there or maybe not so much. Well, when, when we're not
1: hallucinating and, and we're looking at something, then we can we can see things vertically, and we do it much better than any robot or artificial intelligence system. That's why it's taken Google so long to develop a self-driving car. They're trying to. Bring it to the and exceed the level of a, of a, a human visual system. On the other hand, there is an illusion that we have a wall-to-wall tableau of visual detail, mm-hmm. uh, and that is constructed by the brain. Because even if you if you hold your hand out, um, uh, maybe eight inches from the where you're looking, mm-hmm. you can't even count the fingers. Your vision, the right. acuity of your vision, falls off really dramatically. But your eyes are constantly flitting around, uh, and so you're brain constructs a uh, an illusion of a continuously detailed visual world. But outside the fovea, the spot that you're actually looking at, vision is surprisingly coarse, and we rely on expectations and, and memories.
2: I-, I picture hundreds of listeners holding their arms out and saying, you know, I can't count how many fingers I have uh, And uh, it,
1: it doesn't have to be in, the, in your peripheral vision. It just has to be a few inches away from the direction of your gaze. So when
2: people talk about tunnel vision or hyperfocus, really, that's the normal state of There's a sense we... in which
1: we all have tunnel vision. We don't realize it because our eyeballs move around so quickly. Huh. And then psycholinguistics, that was the second half of your yes. question. That's another topic in cognitive science, and that is the psychology of language. How do we understand speech? How do we produce speech? How do children learn their mother tongue? Uh, where does language uh, come from, Uh, who decides what the rules are, how does it change over time, Uh, uh, how do we read. All of those are topics in psycholinguistics, the psychology of language.
2: So I don't remember which book it was. It might have been The Stuff of Thought, or it might have been How the Mind Works. You talked about uh, how words sometimes are onomatopoetic, and it just made me think of the Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner routine, the 2,000-year-old man, where they discuss how egg and shower are automata poetic, And I won't spoil it. People should go find it on YouTube. It's hilarious. But how much of actual language is because things sound like the way they are? Yeah, a, a bit, Uh, And so it's not a complete
1: coincidence that, say, the word mellifluous... uh, is so mellifluous. And the word cantankerous reminds you of a a person with a lot of sharp edges. Uh, On the other hand, that only goes so far because if you could really predict what a word meant by what it sounded like, then you wouldn't have to go through the laborious process of learning a a second language. All the words would would be, uh, the meanings would be obvious. So most of language is arbitrary, but there is a little bit of correlation between sound and
2: So I just got back from Europe, and I know most of what you've worked on has come out of the English language, but why is it that when a non-speaker of, let's say, French or Italian listens, it sounds so melodic, or if you listen to German, it sounds so harsh and guttural? What is it about those languages that give those things that, that sensation? Well, it's a component of language called phonology,
1: the mm-hmm. um, the, the, the sound pattern of the language. And that uh, includes the set of vowels and consonants that you're allowed to use. We don't have in English, but you right. have it in Hebrew and in uh, uh, German. Uh, it also includes the melody and rhythm of speech, what's called prosody. Uh, and, prosody. Yeah, so that, that's yeah. kind of the aspect of language that you can hear behind a closed door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can often recognize a language just from its yes.
2: prosody. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Steven Pinker. Uh, he teaches at Harvard uh, in the psychology department, studying cognition and psycholinguistics, one of your more recent books was called The Better Angels of Our Nature, How Violence Has Declined. And when you see the, the data on this, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty astonishing. In the preference to better angels, you say, the present day we are blessed by an unprecedented level of peaceful coexistence. But that seems to be contradicted by the news headlines we see every day. How do you reconcile the two? because
1: you can't get an accurate picture of the world by looking at the headlines. The headlines are about things that happen. They're not about things that don't happen. And as long as the rate of violence hasn't fallen to zero, there are always going to be enough violent incidents to fill the news. Uh, and we can lose sight of the vast amounts of the world that uh, that are at peace. Uh, currently, the there's a, there is a zone of war that stretches pretty much from Nigeria through um, s- uh, sub-Saharan Africa into the Middle East and then down. Down into uh, Pakistan, but five-sixths of the world is, uh, is at peace, and areas of the world that had, had were torn by w- war for centuries uh, haven't had a war in uh, in decades. Western Europe, one of the most v- historically violent parts of the world, hasn't had a war in uh, in seventy years. Southeast Asia. Uh, those of us who grew up remembering the war Vietnam, in Vietnam, sure. yes, and and there has not been a war in Southeast Asia and, uh, since uh, a small skirmish between China and Vietnam in the late 80s. Uh, then, and it isn't just war. It's also a one-on-one crime, which actually kills more people than wars in most years, other than in world wars. Uh, but uh, the rate of crime has gone down. Everyone knows that it's gone down in the United States, but it seems to have gone down globally as well, especially if you look at even earlier periods in the history. The Middle Ages, the rate of, of uh, homicide was about 35 times uh, what, what it is today. So there was, that was an even more dramatic decline. And it's homicides that kill the majority of people.
2: So you mentioned the Middle Ages. Uh, in, in the book, you describe the six major historical declines of violence Let's skip ahead to, I think it was the third or fourth decline, which was the the invention of the printing press and the spread of literacy. Why is that so important? pactful on reducing violence. Well, it's a conjecture. The the
1: phenomenon we're trying to explain is why there was a cascade of humanitarian reforms around the time of the European Enlightenment, the second half of the 18th century. Also, of course, the time of the uh, American uh, Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights, which was a a kind of product of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Why, Why did people wake up in the 18th century and say, well, maybe we should stop burning heretics, or maybe we should stop executing people for stealing a cabbage? Uh, Maybe slavery isn't such a a great idea when you come down and try to justify it. Uh, Maybe we should stop watching animals tear each other apart for entertainment. Maybe we should stop throwing debtors in in, uh, prison. Uh, So all of these reforms concentrated in a a few decades. And we have to ask, uh, why then? Why did it take people millennia to figure out that might be something a wee bit wrong with slavery? And so, one, uh, so the, the uh, first hypothesis is well, maybe people got richer, and uh, if your life is more pleasant, then you uh, value life more generally, and so you value the lives of others. But the timing doesn't work, mm-hmm. because people only started to get rich, other than the, the, the kings and aristocrats, in the 19th century. Right. And these reforms were really products of the 18th century. So I have suggested that maybe it's the rise of literacy and uh, printing and the exchange of ideas. And that was the only technology that showed a, an increase in productivity prior to the Industrial Revolution. The cost of printing a book plunged in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries mm-hmm. there was kind of an early version of Moore's law if you look at the cost of, of yes. uh, producing a book more and more people were reading there were bestsellers there were there were novels there were also pamphlets in the first newspapers so the world got more connected people could exchange ideas bad ideas could be criticized mm-hmm. people would get together in uh, also in cities in uh, coffee houses and uh, pubs and, and salons to uh, exchange ideas And it's possible that, first of all, that could increase your your circle of empathy. It's harder to dehumanize people when you read their words, uh, when you see what life was like from their point of view. And also when you have ideas being brought together and people debating them and arguing them, Uh, over them, then bad ideas tend to be filtered out. So the idea that the reason that there was a crop failure is because of uh, witchcraft, for example. The reason that there was uh, an epidemic is because the Jews poisoned the wells. Mm -hmm. Slavery is a good thing because Africans can't do anything but be slaves. All of these toxic ideas could start to seem ridiculous when you know more about the world. And that was...
2: uh, conceivably accelerated by the exchange of uh, printed matter. So education helps reduce violence by making people less likely to believe silliness and nonsense and more likely to understand basic science. And the logic of this causes that, not witchcraft. On
1: on average, over the long run, not in every case, because there have been toxic ideas that have been Mm -hmm. uh, advanced by intellectuals. Uh, communism, for example, responsible for massive numbers of deaths uh, was a, an intellectual movement and Nazism. There were plenty of Nazi professors. But I think that when you have freedom of speech, freedom of expression, so you don't get thrown in jail by criticizing a bad idea, uh, then it's more likely that the bad ideas will be exposed. And it's not a coincidence that repressive regimes are also repressive in um, uh, clamping down on free speech.
2: So. We've seen a huge decrease in crime and violence in the United States over the past 30 years. Some people have attributed it to things like the ending of lead paint in apartments. Other people have looked at the removal of various additives to gasoline, taking the lead out of gasoline. Uh, The guys from Freakonomics even have gone so far as to suggest Roe v. Wade is a factor. Why the huge fall off just in the most recent few decades.
1: Yeah, so starting in 1992, there was a an 8-year decline of violent crime in the United States, which brought it down to uh, almost half of its peak. Uh, and then, surprisingly, around 07, 08, there was a second decline, which no one predicted. Everyone said, well, we have great recession, unemployment, crime's going to go up, inequality, uh, and, and crime went down instead of going up. Uh, the honest answer is no one really knows what all the causes were. Probably the, the cute theories, like lead and the gasoline, abortion, are, are wrong. Um, the, uh, and it may be that a number of things went right around the same time. Uh, among them were uh, an increase in the number of police and a change in police tactics. So policing got smarter. Nationwide, the uh, the homicide rate absolutely plunged and rates of other types of crime like rape and assault and, uh, and robbery also went down. Then there are also changes that no one really can uh, completely explain in the culture because there, you also had a decline in teenage pregnancy, a decline mm-hmm. in uh, insurance fraud, a decline in uh, drug use. So somehow people got a little bit more civilized starting in the 90s and on top of these other changes.
2: So, last question, you've noted that the economic benefits of affluence, really a post-19th century phenomena, did not have a big impact on on violent crime. Well, Why, it, why do you imagine that is? Well, it didn't have an
1: impact on institutionalized violence, on slavery, on... Um, uh, Grizzly torture is a form of uh, criminal punishment, like uh, breaking on the wheel and burning on the, uh, the on the stake, um, on um, uh, hundreds of capital crimes on the law books.
2: So it was really meaning, the- meaning crimes that there was a death penalty for. But did not involve homicide. Exactly.
1: That's right. Criticizing the Royal Garden, uh, being in the company well, of Well, wait Gipsies, a second. You, you can
2: those... Listen, I understand some of these other things, but if you're going to criticize the
0: Royal Garden, <laughs> yeah. that's you, it. But you get the wheel to, out. That's you don't right. deserve to live. That's right? horrible. That's, that's, that's amazing that find. that was a
1: capital crime. It right is amazing. Well, then. England had 400 capital crimes on the books in the uh, 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 prior to the 19th century.
2: So the affluence didn't, insti- didn't so it affect wasn't the that. institution.
1: I think right? affluence does affect certain kinds of violence. So for example, countries that are at the rock bottom end of the poverty scale, mm-hmm. that make less than, less than $1,500 uh, GDP per capita, are much more likely to have civil wars. Sure. Uh, although once you climb above that level, then there isn't a clear relationship between civil war and affluence. But certainly rock bottom poverty uh, is a contributor to civil war. Um, in general, but not not always, it's the poorer sectors of, psycho- of society that are more crime prone. So mm-hmm. there is there is some relationship, but it's not a, a not a perfect relationship.
2: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Steven Pinker. He is Professor of Cognitive Science and Psychology at Harvard, uh, author of numerous books, winner of numerous awards. His most recent book is Sense of Style. And let's talk a little bit about the way people communicate today with the written word. What's the impact of the digital realm on writing? I
1: don't think there's a simple answer to that because there isn't one thing called writing. And when people, it's a question I get a lot. Well, now that people are writing in 140 characters for Twitter and instant messages and emails, isn't the language going to deteriorate? And the answer is no, because we don't just write in uh, tweets or in instant messages. We all command a variety of styles for different formats. We don't speak the same way when giving a, a, a lecture as we do um, speaking to our family across the dinner table. Uh, a text message is going to be different from a funeral oration. And so just looking at one kind of writing and saying, well, that's what's going to happen to the language in general just isn't valid because uh, we tailor our our uh, language to the medium.
2: What about technologies like PowerPoint and the tendency for people to try and communicate by numbered bullet points? there there's good powerpoint and there's bad powerpoint okay. uh
1: in in science a hundred percent of scientific presentations are done in powerpoint mm-hmm. um science has not uh, shut down or or even slowed down it's uh, if anything accelerating and powerpoint by mixing text and images can be and, and video and audio can be remarkably powerful uh, we've all sat through uh, horrific PowerPoint presentations, yes. where just banalities are are broken up into bullets. Uh, so, but it's like it's like writing. It's saying like, what does what does print do to the language? Well, there's a, there's a lot of drivel that people write down, and there's a lot of brilliance that people write down. But the the me, PowerPoint medium opens up huge possibilities. Sturgeon's law
2: applies to everything. In other words, exactly. Yes. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about how vocabulary and grammar of English have changed. What drives these changes, and, and how much has the English language changed just over the past century? Uh, it's uh, hasn't changed so much that you can't understand
1: uh, uh, writing that was uh, set down 100 years ago. You know, if you have a look at a, uh, a copy of the New York Times from 1916, and you, you can understand pretty much all of it. But it feels different. The style was more formal. There's been a, a informalization of style that might parallel the informalization of everything else, the fact Mm -hmm. that uh, gentlemen don't wear ties everywhere and that uh, women don't wear uh, white gloves, the fact that we refer to each other uh, on a first-name basis instead of Mr. and Mrs. uh, so-and-so all the time, and writing has gotten more casual as society has gotten more um, democratic, or at least the look and feel is more democratized. Uh, and vocabulary definitely turns over. If you look at an episode of uh, a contemporary show that was set in the past, like uh, Downton Abbey,
0: mm-hmm. linguists
1: have often had a field day at flagging all of the idioms and figures of speech that just didn't exist in the 19-teens right. that the writers uh, uh, kind of anachronistically put in. There's a, there's a lot of turnover. A lot of it is, uh, is kind of random. There's drift in and out. People, uh, an old saying will we'll just sound fusty and old-fashioned and younger people will st- stop using it and they'll introduce new figures of speech. And so there's a, a constant turnover, which is why if you go back more than 100 years, say you go back to Shakespeare, mm-hmm. uh, it's not often not that easy to understand what the references were because the vocabulary ha- is uh, uh, obsolete.
2: One of the things you you wrote in the book that I thought was quite interesting Many of the alleged rules of writing are actually superstitions. Explain what that means.
1: So many of us have been uh, uh, under the impression that you one ought not to split an infinitive. So mm-hmm. instead of saying, um, as Captain Kirk did, to boldly go where no man has gone before, you should say to Go boldly where no man has gone before. <laughs> That's a perfect example of a superstition. There's absolutely no reason to avoid a split infinitive. It, the whole rule came from a, a kind of thick-witted analogy to Latin, where you can't split an infinitive. But there's absolutely no reason uh, to avoid splitting. Ending a end sentence definition.
2: with a proposition.
1: Uh, exactly. So uh, you know, Shakespeare wrote, uh, we are su- such stuff as dreams are made on. you going to go tell Shakespeare that he made a grammatical
2: error? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Professor Steven Pinker, uh, professor of psychology and linguistics at Harvard University. Let's jump into some of the really fascinating things that you have uh, written about. There's, there's one that really struck me, let's go start right off on the wonky, linguistical things. What's the difference between common knowledge and shared knowledge? Because they seem so similar. Yeah,
1: shared knowledge is when you know something and I know something. Common knowledge is a a term from uh, game theory and logic is when I know something, you know something, I know that you know it, you know that I know it, I know that you know that I know that you know that I know it ad infinitum. Right. And that makes a difference. It makes a difference in um, uh, logically. There's c- certain things that you can uh, deduce if something is commonly known. That is, you know that I know that you know it. Mm-hmm. And it makes a difference, I think, in our everyday lives. When we have an uh, expression like the emperor's new clothes... What are we referring to? When the little boy said, "The emperor is naked." He wasn't telling anyone anything that they didn't already know. They could see the emperor was naked. So why did it? Why was it such a big deal? Well, at that moment, everyone knew that everyone else knew that everyone else knew that everyone else knew that, else knew that the emperor was naked, and that allowed them to challenge the emperor's authority by breaking out into laughter.
2: But before the little boy said that, people didn't realize that they had a shared knowledge of his was, lack there, of clothes.
1: There could, there could be a you know a little scintilla of doubt. You know, I, I can see it, but how do I know that everyone else can see it and how do I know that they know that, that I know. And that makes, it, by the way, it makes a difference in technology, especially for uh, they, what they call network externalities. Mm-hmm. That is when the advantage of a technology depends on everyone else using it. And so to uh, generate a uh, ne- network externality, you need to generate common knowledge. And the best example, this is from Michael Chua, is when Apple introduced the Macintosh mm-hmm. back in 1984. Uh, the, I think it was the most expensive commercial ever made. They introduced it in the Super Bowl. Played once, Uh, directed by Ridley Scott. Exactly. Uh, The famous 1984 commercial. Now, the thing is, no matter how good a computer a Macintosh is, no one is going to buy it if they think that they're the only one buying it, because there won't be enough software, there won't be enough peripherals. Right. You have to know two things. You have to know, number one, it's a good computer. Number two, everyone knows that everyone knows that everyone knows that it's a good computer. And that's why you had to introduce it with a um, uh, with something that made a splash that you knew when you were watching the Super Bowl, that the whole country is watching the Super Bowl. Right. And so you knew that this product was going to be,
2: its advantages were going to
1: be common knowledge as opposed to shared
2: knowledge. So, so it's more than just the network effects like a fax machine or what have you. It's the network effects plus everybody recognizing that this is now. Well, that's how you create the
1: network effects. You have to generate common knowledge. And the easiest way to generate common knowledge is if there's an event that everyone can witness while knowing that everyone else is witnessing. And the Super
2: Bowl is a perfect example.
1: That's why the ads in the Super Bowl get almost as much coverage as the Super Bowl itself, because that's where Companies that introduce a product that depends on a network effect will introduce the company. Monster.com is another example. might Mm -hmm. be a great employment site, but who's going to go there unless they think that uh, employers are advertising jobs? And vice versa, who's going to advertise there unless you know that people are going to be looking for jobs? And so you make a big splash on a Super Bowl ad.
2: Let let me continue along uh, surprisingly interesting things. Why do we have facial expressions and what functions do they serve?
1: Yeah, it's not just to. Uh, you might say, wouldn't it be best to keep a poker face and not to, uh, you know, not to show your cards? Uh, I, facial expressions can um, am- can signal the credibility of uh, a, a threat or a promise. And uh, in a study that I did with uh, Ian Reed and Peter DeSholy, we found that um, threats are more credible when they're delivered with a, an angry expression and tone of voice, uh, because they are involuntary unless you're a really really good actor unless they're perceived you know, as real as as sincere because they are sincere in mo- most cases you so people aren't that good at controlling their facial expressions
2: so we've seen I've read about other studies where they look at people smiling and apparently an actual smile involves the eyes and a fake smile just involves the mouth and on a subconscious level people can see and and tell the difference is is Am I telling yes. that right? Or oh, am I absolutely! Mis-
1: sure. When the you know when the flight attendant says bye 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 with the, the grin pasted on her face, you know that she's not actually experiencing joy, and it's usually because the sincere smile is the one with a, a crinkling of the eyes, not just uh, the the mouth in a U shape.
2: So this combines both the visual cognition and the, uh, the language uh, aspect of this as well, doesn't it? Indeed. And uh, talking, speaking of common knowledge,
1: which we discussed earlier in the program, why do people blush? That's a, 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 a puzzle that I've thought about. And I think that, which unlike other facial expressions, which are conveyed by contracting muscles. Mm-hmm. With blushing, you've got this rush of blood to the face. And I think it's because it's um, it generates common knowledge. That is when... The thing about blushing is you... Uh, when you blush, you feel it from the inside, yes. and you display it from the on the outside, and you know that everyone knows that you're blushing. Right. And in fact, when someone says you're blushing, that makes it all the worse. And right. You blush all the more, beet red. So it's, it's genuine
2: and sincere, and both parties understand what it means. Exactly. It's uh, I, I I messed up,
1: and I know that I messed up, and I'm not trying to pull anything uh, over on you. I'm not not a psychopath. I'm not a cheater. Uh, I have the same standards that you did, and I know that I messed up, which is a way of knowing that the Person is less likely to mess up in the future if at least he recognizes that he messed up.
2: So blushing, embarrassment is an acknowledgement of... Common ethical standards, is that is that how, uh, yeah. or common morality? Am I misstating that? Oh,
1: yeah, that's right. Com- common norms, that's right. But in particular, the common knowledge in that technical sense of, if I'm blushing, then not I know that you know that I know that I've messed up. And that means that I uh, by blushing,
2: I'm acknowledging that I'm, I'm playing by the same rules. So I mentioned morality and, and ethics. Uh, one of the columns you had written, I think it was for The Times, uh, talked about three people Mother Teresa, Bill Gates, and Norman Borlaug. And if you were to ask various people who's the most admirable of these uh, three people, who is the most um, uh, has had the greatest impact on on humans, most most people get the answer to that wrong.
1: Yes, I mean the common answer is, well. You know, Mother Teresa. She's a you know a saint. She's the, the most. In fact, if you ask someone who is the most moral person of the twentieth century, they would say, "Oh, I guess Mother Teresa." But now you think, what exactly did she do? I mean, good. You know, she washed the feet of some you know lepers and and, and brought them help in and, the let them, and let them die. Things, well, right? help them. I mean, how did she actually make them less poor? Uh, Temporarily for a meal or two, but... For a meal or two. But then you look at um, uh, Bill Gates, and I used the example at a time before he became famous as a philanthropist. He was just starting the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, He's trying to conquer infectious disease in the developing world with the uh, um, chance of improving the lives of tens of millions of people, of saving tens of millions of lives. Then Norman Borlaug I threw in because no uh, one's I, heard th- of Norman That's
2: Bar- a fascinating So I never heard of him. Who the and- hell is Norman Borlaug? He won and- the
1: Nobel Peace Prize for uh, in, inventing the Green Revolution in the 1960s, developing uh, crops and methods of farming that m- multiplied the amount of food that uh, an uh, acre of land would deliver. He's credited with saving a billion lives more than anyone in history and no one's heard of him. He he wins and he,
2: and yet is totally
1: unknown. That, totally. So what it shows is that our sense that our own as, uh, ascription of morality, who we revere, who we don't care about, who we uh, even maybe even revile. And by the way, the other reason I chose Bill Gates was at the time that he was associated with uh, MS-DOS and Windows, which everybody hated. Which everyone hated it, and so everyone hated him. He got a, someone threw a pie in his face. There were I hate Gates websites at the time. Uh, it, it So our, our ascription of morality, who we give Brownie points to, is very loosely related to how much good they do in the world. And uh, it, it's actually a, a quirk of our own nature of who we admire. I think it relates to who we would like to have on our side, in our foxhole, part of our community. Mm-hmm. And it isn't really
2: closely related to how much good they do in the world. So. If people want to find more of your writings online in addition to all your various books, where's the best place to send them?
1: StephenPinker.com is my website that has links to uh,
2: all of my articles uh, as well as to pages for each one of my books. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around and listen to our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue To chat about all things cognitive and linguistic, Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on Bloombergview.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Are you looking to take your business to the next level? The accounting, tax, and advisory professionals from Cone Resnick can guide you. Cone Resnick delivers industry expertise and forward-thinking perspective that can help turn business possibilities into business opportunities. Look ahead, gain insight, imagine more. Is your business ready to break through? Learn more at coneresnick.com/slash-breakthrough. Cone Kohn Resnick, accounting, tax, advisory.
2: Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Steve, I don't know what to call you, Professor Pinker, Steve, what, Steve? Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this. This is really, I love this stuff. I find it endlessly fascinating. And anytime I can weave cognition into what investors should be looking at, thinking about, and just stimulating their thought process to develop better mental models and better processes to approach this stuff, I, I I think it's just fascinating, and it's your work is so diverse that you're obviously fascinated by so much of this. It's apparent in everything I read of yours. Uh, absolutely, and thank you for having me on. Uh, well, it's been it's been my pleasure. There are some questions we didn't get to mm-hmm. before I do my standard questions, but some of these I just have to come back to. So, in the 1950s, comic books were going to turn juveniles into delinquents, and what happened subsequent to that? Yeah, the 1950s were, were uh, was a decade of very low crime. And then the 1990s, same thing. Video games were going to cause people to become ultra-violent. Especially the first-person shooter games. It's
1: and, easy to imagine how that might happen, but it didn't happen. That was the era in which crime plummeted.
2: And then, in general, television, transistor radios, rock and roll, Music videos were decades where people were supposed to get stupid. <laughs> That's
1: right. And uh, actually, IQ scores have been increasing for decades, the so-called Flynn effect. Although what? crime did go up in the 1960s, and it stayed high from the 60s through the uh, early 90s. So not all of—so So, so the, the people who said that uh, when rock and roll was coming in that it would lead to a breakdown of uh, order and safety— weren't completely wrong in that there was crime shot up by um, a factor of of more than
2: two. So it was before. rock and roll. It wasn't an ill considered war in in Southeast Asia. It was music. Is the, well, the, it, it wasn't <laughs>
1: rock and roll, but uh, but uh, although it wasn't, uh, the war in Asia probably didn't lead to
2: a rise in street crime in uh, in the United States either. Uh, But it did lead to—so what what I remember New York City in the 70s was a disaster. Yes. What led to a breakdown in in those basic societal norms of not robbing and killing and raping? How does that go off the rails?
1: Yeah, again, the the honest answer is we don't know for sure, but a number of things uh, happened. The baby boomer generation reached its crime-prone years. Uh-huh. Uh, in the 60s that wasn't enough to explain it that would explain why violent crime would increase by 15 percent violent crime in fact increased by 150 mm-hmm. percent but it may be that having a whole generation coming of uh, age at the same time kind of overwhelmed society's defenses sure uh, and it was a time in
2: which there was uh, a uh, civil a, unrest uh, a change in rights there was a whole bunch of a different... whole bunch
1: of things and a general you know we we grew up uh, th- uh, th- in it there was a decline in respect for authority. The police backed off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, there is some truth to the, um, uh, the explanation that the criminal justice system was less likely to put people behind bars. What about uh, the broken spiral-
2: window uh, thesis? Do you, yeah, the do you buy windows- into any
1: of that? Uh, there, there is evidence that the, that the broken windows effect is real. That is, if a neighborhood shows signs of disrepair the famous broken windows, uh, mm-hmm. graffiti, turnstile jumping, and so on, then that um, conveys the message that uh, that this is a place where the rules are not enforced. And there's some experiments that show that increasing the general appearance of order leads to a, a decrease in uh, in the rate of crime. Uh, it doesn't deserve all the credit, but it, it may be deserve a
2: part of it. Fa- I find that I find that fascinating. Let me see what else I skip through. Oh, let, let's talk about the long piece. When we were talking about, from Better Angels, the various six phases of um, decrease in, va- in violence, what, what exactly is the long piece and what was the cause of it?
1: Long piece refers to the fact that war between great powers, the 800-pound guerrillas of the world, um, has uh, kind of stopped. The last one that we had was in 1953, with the end of the Korean War, with the United States on one side and China on the
2: other. Was that really a U.S. versus China, though? I mean, I know there were a lot of proxies, but it wasn't like World War II, where Germany and Russia and U.S. and Japan were literally doing battles with each other. Well, there was a coalition
1: that uh, the United Nations uh, authorized with, of course, the United States contributing the, the, uh, the most troops and, and weaponry. And uh, of course, North Korea had its own uh, army, but supported by, overtly by China mm-hmm. and with the USSR definitely helping, although not sending troops. But uh, through most of history the great powers were always at each other's throats. And then after World War II, that uh, that kind of um, went out of style, as did wars between developed states, that is, rich countries. We, mm-hmm. we we think of war as something that takes place in the poor, backward parts of the world. But it used to be that it was the rich countries that were constantly at war, and that has uh, gone out of style. What and do you credit be- for that? And wars between countries in general. Most wars now are civil wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, wars between Intra-country. countries. I- intra-state wars as opposed to interstate war. And um, a number of things. One is that the world has become more globalized. When you when um, there's more trade, there is uh, less of an incentive to go to war. You mm-hmm. you don't you don't kill your customers, uh, because or your supply to, chain. Yeah, or your supply <laughs> chain. Exactly. You don't. Um, if it's cheaper to buy things than to steal them, then you don't. Uh, uh, you're you're less likely to plunder and invade. Uh, there's been with the United Nations, there has been a, a norm that borders are pretty much grandfathered in. So you don't push borders around by force. You don't uh, swallow states that uh, states are are now considered to be immortal. They can break apart, but they can't be swallowed by their neighbors. Hmm. Uh, There is more democracy. And on average, democracies are a little bit less likely to wage war, at least on each other. Uh, And I think there's more of a a respect for human life, the idea that you should die for your country, that it's glorious and sweet and the, the best thing that you could do and Conversely, that leaders can sacrifice uh, millions of their own young men for the glory of the empire is uh, uh, less in operation now than it used to be.
2: So before I get to my favorite questions, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the debate over gene editing. Uh, For people not familiar with CRISPR, there's been a huge number of articles, most recently in Wired magazine, describing how this has made what was once time- consuming, complex and expensive, very inexpensive and relatively easy to do. What does the advances in biotech say about current morality and, and why are some people on one side or the other of that debate?
1: There's there's a widespread fear that first popped up when Dolly the Sheep was cloned in 1997 Mm -hmm. and has been revived now with the development of uh, CRISPR-Cas9, making it easy to edit genes, that we'll be designing our own children very soon. We'll we'll put in the gene for musical ability or athletic ability or high IQ. Uh, I I think that's very unlikely. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it is possible that you could edit out disease genes, uh, but... Uh, having looked at the genetic basis of personality and, and intelligence, I can tell you that there ain't no IQ gene. There are there may be a thousand genes, each one of which raises or lowers your IQ by a tenth of a point. Mm -hmm. but the single gene that's going to give you musical talent or athletic ability just doesn't exist. That's just not the way genes work. There is a genetic basis to talent and personality, Mm -hmm. but it seems to be distributed across hundreds or thousands of genes, each with a tiny effect, many of which may have um, uh, side effects. That is, there may be a gene that increases your um, likelihood of being smart, but also slightly increases your rate of having bipolar disorder, right uh, or of uh, some kind of uh, degenerative disease. So I don't see parents taking the chance with their children a- anytime soon of mucking around with the, uh, with the embryo by putting in a few genes, each of which is co- might increase the IQ by a tiny fraction of a point, but might also introduce some, some risks.
2: So I'm, I'm glad I brought that up because uh, I've read some of the pieces you've written on that and thought it was interesting. Let me get to my, I know I only have you for another 10 minutes or so, so let me get to some of my favorite uh, questions I ask all my guests. So uh, your background is really kind of interesting. Did you know you always wanted to be a professor? Did you always want to go into teaching?
1: Uh, I certainly enjoyed teaching from the time I was in, uh, in, in college. I put myself through college by tutoring high school students in math and science. Uh, I, for a while, I thought, gee, maybe it would be fun to be a high school math teacher. But uh, I, uh, uh, my mother, uh, among others, convinced me that uh, university was really the place for, for me, that mm-hmm. um, uh, adding to knowledge as well as transmitting knowledge was, uh, seemed to be what, what I enjoyed doing.
2: Nicely done, Rose. Um, <laughs> next question, early mentors. Who were some of the the people who uh, uh, mentored you and, and gave you intellectual direction? Uh,
1: as a, uh, an undergraduate, I was a student at McGill University and was in the psychology department there. And I worked in a lab of uh, a cognitive psychologist named Albert Bregman, who studied auditory pattern perception, how we, the brain makes sense of the world of sound. <laughs> Uh, in university, uh, one of my advisors was Roger Brown, the great social psychologist and founder of the study of child language acquisition in children, and a gifted writer, uh, and I, I think I took lessons from him on writing, how to try to write stylishly. Stephen Cosselin, uh was my mentor in visual cognition. He's now the uh, academic dean of Minerva University, a startup university uh, based in San Francisco.
2: Interest. It's interesting group, and it seems um, you took something from each of those folks and uh, took it.
1: One more is a uh, Joan Bresnan, who is a linguist at MIT at the time. She was a student of Noam Chomsky's, mm-hmm. and she was my postdoctoral advisor.
2: Ah, there you go. That that's quite a uh, quite a list. You reference Chomsky quite frequently in in many of the books. Obviously, um, he is a leader in in this field. Uh my next question is what are some of your favorite books? Uh, whether it relates to uh, language and, and linguistics or, or anything else, well, Noam Chomsky was my colleague at MIT for 21 years,
1: and mm-hmm. he was in a different department. But uh, he was certainly an influence from the time that I was an undergraduate. Particularly his books in, in uh, linguistics, uh, "Language and Mind," was a book that I read as an undergraduate. I don't certainly don't share his politics, but uh, and I, I nor do I uh, subscribe to his particular theory of how language works. But he broke open the field of language, and, and really deserves credit for uh, for the modern understanding of language.
2: Any other books stand out as whether it's fiction, nonfiction, related. Uh, well, I'm uh, married to a novelist,
1: Rebecca Goldstein, and her mm-hmm. book, The Mind-Body Problem, I read many years before I met her. Oh, remember, really? Remember that old ad? Uh, the guy, uh, Victor Kayyem, who got a shaver, he said, I liked it so I much. I bought the company. I bought the company. Right. Well, I, I liked the novelist so much that I married her.
2: That, that's very, very funny. Um, so since you really started in psycholinguistics and, and visual cognition, what are some of the major changes that have taken place in that industry or or that field of study, I should really call it?
1: Certainly, the the rise of neuroimaging, functional magnetic resonance imaging uh,
2: was uh, uh, revolutionized the field. Being able to see what part of the brain lights up in response to different f- stimulus, different uh, processes is is that is that specifically uh, what you're referring to? Exactly. Yeah, and that that has been the the single biggest change. And how does that manifest itself in in the study of language?
1: Well, you can see uh, how words are processed in the brain. Um, You can um, see how um, grammatical processing is implemented. That is, uh, and and again, by grammatical processing, I don't mean rules like avoiding dangling participles. I mean just ordering words in a way that makes sense, what what Mm -hmm. we do every time we open our mouths and produce a sentence. Uh, And you can see also the pattern of information flow from one part of the brain to another, because it's not as if one blob of the brain is responsible for all of language. There is, You have to coordinate uh, your understanding of what words mean, your knowledge of English syntax, the control of the muscles of your tongue. Uh, In conversation, you go back and forth between speaking and listening, so it also involves uh, hooking up Uh, uh, speech information coming in from the ear. Uh, You have to hold things in memory. As you start a sentence, you have to know where you're going. So a a lot of different parts of the brain are involved in language, forming a a kind of network. And uh, neuroimaging helps you see the different parts of the network and how they interact.
2: Uh, I recall reading about aphasiacs and other damages to, physical damages to the brain. How important is looking at damage, physical trauma and disease to learning about language? Is is that something that we did decades ago and figured out, oh, this injury causes this result? Have we moved beyond that? Or is that still a key part of recognizing how these brain components develop.
1: It still is a key part. It used to be the only way that you could understand Mm. language in the brain. Um, uh, Now it's still important, even in the era of neuroimaging, because neuroimaging tells you what is active when you um, are engaged in a task, but it doesn't tell you what's necessary. For all you know, it could be like the lights that flash on a, on a computer. That right. is, you, you turn off the lights, the computer still does its thing. It's kind of a spillover effect. And you never know just from the fact that blood is going to a particular area of the brain, whether it actually, that part of the brain is necessary for for the person to do what they're doing. With brain damage, you're removing a component and or nature is removing a component and you're seeing what they can no longer do. So it's still a a supplementary form of information and an important one.
2: So you work with a lot of college kids, people who are just starting out their career. When a millennial or recent graduate comes to you and says, I'm thinking about a career in linguistics and visual cognition and in any of the subsectors of psychology that you focus on, what sort of advice do you give them? Uh, if you're if you're passionate about something and if
1: you're uh, if you can see yourself uh, throwing yourself into it, doing a lot of work, then you should um, pursue it as a career, even if the academic job market is um, discouraging, which of course it is. Um, it has been at various times, such as when I was a student. And I'll remember, I remember the advice that I got from Ronald Melzack, a, a professor of psychology at McGill, pioneer in the study of pain. He said, look at the bright side. People die. Uh, people, <laughs> People retire. People get higher paying jobs in industry. There's always turnover, even if the mm-hmm. market is contracting. If you think you're good at it, if you're willing to to uh, dedicate yourself to it, if it excites you enough that it doesn't feel like work, but it feels like play, there'll always be openings. And so I tell students if they're really passionate about some intellectual topic, not to just automatically go into law or finance or consulting because that's the easy path, but that it really is still possible to make a career in, in what you uh, what you love.
2: And our, our last question is, what is it that you know about cognition and linguistics today? that you wish you knew when you started 30 years ago? Oh, uh, well, that um, uh, I think that uh,
1: any cognitive or psychological trait both has a, a heritable basis but is distributed over hundreds or thousands of genes, that there is not going to be a gene for X, um, that, uh, that there's a, a lot of information that can come out of looking at large data sets, that uh, you're understanding of a subject is only as good as the data that you can uh, examine, and that to understand something, you've got to um, look at as large a set of data as you can find.
2: Professor Pinker, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has been just absolutely fascinating. If you enjoy this conversation uh, and others like this, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch at any of the other 92 or so such conversations we've had over the past two years. Be sure to check out my daily column. It used to be Bloombergview.com, but I am now seeing that it is Bloomberg.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Um, I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, Taylor Riggs for being our booker, Charlie Vollmer for being our producer engineer, and Michael Batnick, head of research, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening, or you've been listening,
0: to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at coneresnickcom slash breakthrough.